If you have a Bible, you can open up to Ruth chapter 2. <clears throat> we are uh, studying through the book of Ruth. <clears throat> we studied through the book of Judges over the course of the fall. And we're looking at uh, Ruth now. They were written in the same time period. So uh, if you have a, a Bible, you can open up to Ruth chapter 2. Uh, that's where we will be. Uh, if you're able to, I'd love for you to stand with me as we um, read. I'm just going to read the first five verses, although we will do the entire chapter. Uh, we're just going to do the first five verses, and I'll say, uh, I'll say at the end of reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. And I say this all the time, but you're saying thanks to the Lord for being so kind to give us the scriptures. But let that also serve for you as a reason uh, when you say thanks be to God as the Lord, the things you show me, I want to say yes to, I want to obey, I want to be obedient to. So starting in verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that <clears throat> you are amazingly kind to us and that as we read your word and study it, um, that you use it to point us to Jesus. And so I pray that as last week we looked at um, Naomi and we saw the despair and the sadness um, that she had gone through and uh, just how she had been to the end of <clears throat> suffering, uh, that this week as we see a turn and we see that there's hope giving to her, that for those here uh, that are suffering, that they would also see the hope that's shown to us in the text and want to hope continually in the Lord. And for those that are believers in Christ, that are, uh, life has is, is not had these things thus far, that they would <clears throat> continually put their hope in Jesus and um, that from all the things we see in the text, that our minds and hearts uh, would be, <coughs> excuse me, would be uh, moved towards the compassionate nature of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you weren't here last week, I'll catch you up real fast. Uh, in Ruth, as I said, this is written in the time period of the Judges uh, and takes place in the time period of, not written in the time period of Judges, but takes place in the time period of Judges. And in the period of the Judges, it, the, the book of the Judges ends with Judges 21-25. It says, uh, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so because that's the case, uh, most people were not following God as they should. Now we're going to see an exception here of a man named Boaz, who is just an extraordinary person. But in that time, that's the case. And so with, through chapter one, we see this man, who's, uh, his name's Elimelech, uh, wanting to provide for his family, but not following after God, takes his family out of Bethlehem and leads them over to Moab, uh, where the one thing he's trying to do is avoid death uh, because of the famine, and he does die. And after he dies, he has his wife and his two sons. His two sons marry Moabite women, which they weren't allowed to do, and then his two sons die. And so there they are in Moab. Uh, Naomi, 
Elimelech's wife and the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Uh, and they say, well, we're not going to stay here anymore because we hear that there's food back in Bethlehem. We should go. And so they start making their way back to Bethlehem. And Naomi looks at her two daughters-in-law and she's like, don't stay with me. Tragedy only follows me. Why would you? Leave me alone. Just go back to your, your mother's house and just let me go back to Bethlehem. I'm just, I'm just a mess and following me will make your life a mess. And so Orpah eventually just says, okay, and then turns back to the gods of Moab and Chemosh, uh, which is their gods, and, and stays in that life of pagan world. Uh, but on the way back, Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you. And she makes this declarative statement in chapter 1, 16 through 18, uh, where she's converted and she says, your God is going to be my God. It's probably the worst evangelism strategy ever is to tell somebody, don't follow God. But God still overcomes all that and that she decides to follow God. And so Naomi's uh, evangelizes her with reverse psychology or, or something. No, she doesn't, but, but she comes to know Christ. So you see at the close of the chapter, Ruth and Naomi coming back into Bethlehem. So for uh, Naomi, it's a bit of a homecoming. She hasn't been to her hometown in 10 to 15 years. For Ruth, everything's new. She's not from there. She's a Moabite. She stands out. She's ethnically not looking like them. Everything's quite different for Ruth. And they're walking into uh, walking into Bethlehem. And as we get into verse 22, we can see what's a little bit of context. This is uh, the verse above, chapter two, verse one. So Naomi returned with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who returned to the country, who returned from the country of Moab. Here they come. And they came into Bethlehem. And it says there at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Naomi uh, left, filled, became empty, returns empty, and what we're going to see is uh, God will begin to fill Ruth, not Naomi, fill Ruth. Um, with, in every single case there is to be filled. You're going to fill her with food in the beginning, going to eventually fill her with a husband. And as we close the book, fill her with a son. And so the Lord is going to move in the life of Ruth. Um, and Naomi will feel the effects of that and will, of course, be glad. But as they're going, you can see it says at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so they're walking in sometime around March, April. And so this is uh, whenever there would be a lot of food in the, in the city, plentiful because the grains are coming in and they're walking back into Bethlehem into the favor of God. It's like whenever you walk in into Krispy Kreme and the hot now lights come on, favor of God. This is what they're walking into the, the house of bread and there's plenty of bread available. We're walking into the Krispy Kreme and it's all hot now and they just melt in your mouth. Everything's great. So they're walking, as they're walking back in, my point is, is that they're walking into the favor of God. The Lord is, and you're going to see favor as a theme here. Uh, Naomi's going to say, or Ruth's going to say to Naomi in verse uh, two, hey, I want to go find favor. And then you're going to see in verse 10 and 13, she finds favor. She's looking for favor and she's going to find favor. Of course, it's all through Boaz, um, ultimately through God. So anyway, uh, as we go to uh, chapter two, um, it starts with uh, an intentional kind of way. Uh, verse one is written to pink your interest. If you ever watch 24, whenever it's going, you know how there's like, there's two screens and you see one thing happen in one thing, someplace of the city and another thing happen in another city. And so that's what's going on. We're seeing uh, Boaz walking and we're seeing Ruth. If you don't know what 24, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you do, you, you know, you, both screens are going. And eventually in 24, uh, like the Boaz screen fades and then you just see Ruth. But right now we see Boaz and Ruth. And so on this side, 
God, we see Boaz in verse one, and it's written this way to, to split screen for us and to pique our interest in this guy. And as he mentions Boaz, he's not gonna mention until verse three later on, but he wants you to know who Boaz is before Boaz just walks up into the scene. And it's the writer's way of saying, keep your eyes on this guy. He's important. He's a model that you need to watch. So it tells us in verse one, Naomi uh, had a relative of, hu uh, of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And so we're looking at the, that split screen and it tells us about Boaz. N meanwhile, we see Ruth and Naomi, you know, in Naomi's house, kind of talking to each other. We're gonna zoom in on that in a second. But we're told four things about Boaz before we get there. And it's important that we notice these. One, he's a relative, Hebrew Moda. He's part of the family uh, and a relative of Elimelech of Elimelech. And in this culture, that's a great thing. This means that he's someone who's going to be able to make changes in the life of Ruth and Naomi um, according to the law. He's also, as it says, a worthy man. And this is a generic kind of catch-all phrase that has a massive wide range of meaning. So he's like Gideon and, and Judges, he's a, who is a mighty man, valor, uh, a mighty man of valor and, and noble. Boaz isn't a warrior, but he's like Gideon. He's also like... Uh, uh, Boaz, uh, um, a worthy man, means he's also a man of substance, of wealth. He is, he is very rich, uh, and he's got uh, these fields, and he oversees lots of people, and he's a man of substance and wealth, and he's able to make, uh, uh, because he's wealthy, lots of changes and lots of good things in people's lives. It also means, like in Proverbs 31.10, where it uses the same phrasing, but the feminine equivalent, uh, noble with respect to character, that's also true of Boaz. So uh, he's not just a wealthy man. He's also a man of integrity. He's a man of godliness. He's a man of moral wealth and material wealth. And so what we're going to see as we're, before the, before the, the screen closes, is that, uh, He's a model of justice in this chapter, and he's a worthy man that demonstrates how to be compassionate to everybody, especially the vulnerable. He's also from the clan of Elimelech. It tells us that. It tells us four things. Uh, but this means that he's the legal, rem, uh, legal uh, relative of Elimelech, and it's crucial because according to the Israelite laws, he, he can be a goel. He can be a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer in Ruth's life, which means he's able to bring her out of the situation she's in and redeem her. So therefore, Boaz, before we even get going, is a picture of Christ. Uh, he is a foreshadowing of the truer and greater uh, shadow, or reality, which is Jesus, because uh, he is a picture of Christ. And so since Boaz um, is going to do work in, in, in Ruth's life, uh, we should take note of it that he reminds us, Boaz reminds us of Jesus's grace that's been given to us, who brought us our salvation. He strengthens us with the Holy Spirit, empowers us to live and uh, walk according to his statutes by the power of the Holy Spirit in this broken world. And so because of Christ, um, we have all these things made available. We have a righteous life that's been given to us. And so so uh, Boaz is a picture of Christ. And so we don't want to just look at Boaz. We want to see that he's a foreshadowing of Jesus. And notice all of the characteristics of Boaz that Jesus has. Now, Jesus has infinitely more characteristics than Boaz that are amazing. But nevertheless, he's a picture of Christ as we're walking through. And we also see he's a relative. He's a worthy man. He's a clan of living elect. And his name is Boaz. Uh, it's highly debated what this means. Um, but I think it means strong, uh, uh, spiritually strong, or the, the strength of God is in him uh, is what it, it can mean. So um, this is the kind of man he is. Um, his name is Boaz, and he's a strong guy. Now we come up to uh, those things, and so as you finish verse 1, the screen closes, and now we're zooming in on Ruth and Naomi, and it says, Ruth the Moabite, again, uh, saying Moabite just 
continues the ethnic tension that's going on. What's going to happen to the Moabite? How is she going to marry into Israel? How's that going to work? But we do see some things about her. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. So she um, is a new believer that happened in verses 16 through 18. But since she's a new believer, she doesn't believe because the, the sovereignty of God, the providential hand of God has been highlighted in this book. She's not going to play a passive role and just say, well, I'm, I'm saved now. And so uh, I'm just gonna sit back with you, Naomi, in the, in the house here. Do we still say hizzy? I'm gonna sit in the hizzy. We say hizzy at the Chambers house, but we're old. Um, and, and just kind of wait till something comes to me. No, no, she's gonna go. She's gonna go do something and, and take her faith and make it active. And so, so the first thing I want you to see as we're going into verses one through three, you can go ahead and put up, uh, next one, there we go. A New Hope is the name of the sermon if you're a Star, Trek, Star Wars fan. Sorry guys, I didn't say Star Wars. Go ahead and put up number one. Um, the first thing that we see is Ruth, faith, and initiative. So we know that she has faith, but faith does not cause us to be passive. It never should cause us to be passive. Even in a sovereign world where God is totally in charge and bringing all things about, faith should also cause us to be an active worker. And that's what she's doing. She's taking initiative and being active. She says, um, let me go to the field and glean among the ears. I, I'm not gonna just sit back and wait for food. I wanna go. And so she's courageous. She's humble. She's willing to take the lowly servant role. She's a hardworking immigrant and she wants to go and put her faith into action. And so maybe you can identify with Ruth in some ways. Um, there's, there's, I think, a lot that we can identify with. She's a new believer. She has no money. Uh, she doesn't have any parents around her. She used to worship idols, but now she's been transformed by God, and now she's been moved into the people of God. She doesn't come from a great family. She's single, uh, again, but nevertheless, she's single, but she wants to put her faith into action. So let me, while I highlight those things about her, uh, make sure I address something uh, that's obvious, but nevertheless, we forget obvious things sometimes. And so it's, I think it's helpful for us to rehearse some things that we, can, that we cannot believe. But let me address one thing, which is the myth of singleness. Um, singleness, the definition of singleness is not not yet arrived. That's not the definition of singleness. It doesn't mean you have not arrived yet or spiritually immature there are plenty of single people that are more mature than married folk. And so the application then for those that are single means live like Ruth. Don't live like you're in waiting. Don't uh, wait to get married so that you can finally start having what you think to be as a life of significance. Instead, realize that you are significant right now. You're not waiting to finally be used by God. You are being used by God right now. Um, so singleness does not mean not yet arrived. And so for married folks, I think it's important for us to remember, because um, it's hard for us to remember when we were single, let's view single people in the church in this light. Don't treat them as in waiting or spiritually immature. Instead, treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ who have just as much gifts in the Holy Spirit as we do and just as much to offer to the body as we do. Um, so here's Ruth being used amazingly as a single woman by God to minister to Naomi. She's going to do an amazing work in Naomi, which brings the new hope. The new hope, humanly speaking, is brought by Ruth, a single woman, to, 
just devastated Naomi. Um, and she says to Naomi, hey, I want to go and I want to go out to these fields and I want to glean. So whenever she makes this request of Naomi to do this, the roles have now reversed and Naomi is taking the back seat as the major player and Ruth is coming to the foreground as the major player. And this is what faith and action looks like. It's about the providence of God, this book over and over. Um, but nevertheless, it's telling us that we should not be passive agents. We should be active agents working out our faith as intentionally as we can. And so she says, I want to go and glean among the ears. Now you might not understand this, but basically let's picture my music stand as a big, huge field. Um, there was an Old Testament law that says, if you own this field, harvest in the middle, but the outside edges, the margins are for the marginalized. Don't ever harvest in the, in the margins because Everybody that's oppressed, everybody that's a marginalized uh, person, they're allowed to come to the edges and take things from the edges to go back and supply. Now, they have to work for it. They can't just come up and say, hand it to me. They have to come and they have to get it. But nevertheless, this was written into the Mosaic law of Moses because God cares about everybody. And God wants to make an abundance of provision, not just for those that have, but for those that are on the outskirts that don't have yet, that for the vulnerable. And so this was written into the law. One uh, commentator says it this way, the Mosaic law displayed particular compassion for the alien, the orphan, and the widow by prescribing that harvesters deliberately leave the grain from the corners of the fields for the economically vulnerable classes to not have to go back to gather later the ears of grain that they might have dropped just as an accident. This Moabite Ruth widow has qualified, it says on two accounts, I think even three, she's a widow, um, she's a Moabite, and she's a woman. So on all three accounts, She's certainly one of, these, one of these vulnerable. And so for these same reasons, she couldn't count on the good wills of the locals. Hence her concern, she wants to go and glean around the edges and look for someone who might show favor. Let's glean among the ears after him of whose sight I might find favor. Hopefully somebody at these fields will be kind to me and I can, I can get some, some stuff uh, to be able to bring back to you, Naomi, and take care of us. So the law included provision but it also required effort among the poor to work. And Ruth is going to have to go out and work for it. But nevertheless, the provisions are there. Um, and so some landowners wouldn't even do that. Some landowners would not obey the Mosaic law and would, would harvest all the way. But not Boaz. Boaz is a worthy man. Boaz is a great man, and we're going to see that she happens to go into Boaz's field. And of course, all these provisions are going to be made for her. So the theme's favor. She's looking for favor. She's going to find favor in verses 10 and 13, which we're going to see. And then uh, she tells her, uh, Naomi tells her, go, my daughter. Uh, uh, spoken tenderly. Um, and we're start, maybe by seeing go, go, my daughter, we're seeing that root of bitterness starting to subside a little bit. We're going to see some excitement from Naomi in a minute. Mara is going to be gone by the end of the chapter. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we come up here and we see in verse 3. Uh, and it's, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And here it says for us, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And the Hebrew is actually uh, literally, and her chance chanced upon the allotted portion of the field in Boaz. Um, Proverbs 16, 9 says, the heart of a man plans of the way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so if, when the Bible says happen or his chance chanced, um, the writer is using that, that funky language, not because he believes in chance and luck, but instead to highlight, drawing on irony, the, the sovereign hand of God doing something. 
It says it this way. Uh, Block says, the writer, that's his name. Um, the writer is drawing on irony by excessively attributing Ruth's good fortune to chance. He forces the reader to sit up and take notice and ask questions concerning the significance of everything that's transpiring. The purpose of writing this way is to undermine the purely rational explanations for human experiences and refine the reader's understanding of providence. In reality, he's screaming, see the hand of God at work here. God brought famine. God brought good grace and food in verse 6 in chapter 1. God brought him back to the, uh, Bethlehem. God brought her to this particular field. Just to make sure we get the summary. Um, Ruth married Naomi's son who died. She decided to not go back to Moab but go to Bethlehem. And as she comes back, she just happens to glean in a field at the of, of the edges of where the law allows. And in this field, in Bethlehem, she just happens to glean in the field of Boaz, who just happens to be a worthy man, who just happens to be from the clan of Elimelech, related to Elimelech, Naomi's husband, who has just passed away, who Malon has just passed away. And so he just happens to be able to be available to be a Goel, a, a kinsman redeemer. That's not just how it works, right? God's hand is sovereignly moving all the way to bring this about. This isn't uh, happenstantial. That's not a word, but I just made it up. Um, happenstance is what we can say. Uh, but nevertheless, um, even that's all the case. The hand of God is doing this, right? What we see is faith and initiative. Faith and action. Ruth's faith and action. Both are present in this life of this new believer. Uh, we see her, her conversion in 1 through 16. We see uh, Boaz's affirmation of her conversion in 2.12. And she is a genuine believer and follower of God. And she's also going to work hard uh, by asking permission. And she, when she gets to 2-7, we're going to see she's working hard out in the field. So she's putting her faith in action. Um, And so we also should do this. We are believers in the sovereignty of God, but we also need to be people of action. We need to take initiative and live out our faith. We need to take risks for the glory of Jesus. Not risks that are crazy, like I'm going to jump out of an airplane for Jesus. Why? No, that's not for Jesus, right? But I'm going to move into that neighborhood. I'm going to buy this particular thing so that people can come over. I'm going to go to that person that's hard to reach and become their friend and get to know them and really do life with them. I'm going to take risks that aren't normal for me to live out my faith. That's what she's doing. Um, So that brings us to our second part. Whenever we get to 4 through 17, uh, we've seen Ruth's faith and initiative, and now we're going to see Boaz's favor and generosity in 4 through 17. You can put up number two, um, Boaz's faith, favor and generosity in 4 through 17. And the way that we're going to see his generosity in 4 through 17 is through a series of three conversations, um, series of three conversations. The first conversation is him with the people that work for him, his workers. The second conversation is between he and Ruth. And the third conversation is back with he and the people that work for him. So first conversation, uh, verse four. Four through seven. Go ahead and put up the title. Boom. Put it up. One more. Right there. Stop. All right, here we go. First conversation highlighting the favor and generosity of Boaz. Verse four. All right, so, uh, and and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers. Now, Boaz just came out to his field and notice what he says. He comes up to his workers and he goes, the Lord be with you. And what do they say? The Lord bless you. So this is pretty awesome. Like he walks up into the deal and as soon as he gets there, he sees all of his people that he loves. 
don't miss how awesome Boaz is, right? We, we don't need to miss how of a great of an employer he is to his people. Right when he walks up, he screams out, the Lord be with you. And what do they say? They don't say, what? What is this new thing you're yelling at us? Instead, it's so familiar, they yell back, the Lord bless you. And so the relationship that he has with these, with these guys is amazing. And it's showing us the authenticity of Boaz when he lives out his faith. He's not just a guy that, that walks around and talks about Jesus just at church or just at community group. Instead, um, for him, it's a whole life deal following God. And their response, the Lord be with you, is clear that this kind of interchange happens all the time. He speaks to them about God and it's really comfortable to speak with them about God. And they're believers, it seems, because they're throwing back blessings to him. So he's provided for them a great positive Christ-centered work environment and it's a model of a true covenant kind of hesed he has for them and the way that they have for, back for him and both of their speech is characterized and flavored with grace as they deal with each other. For, for you this would mean in your, in, your, in, your, in your job wherever you are if somebody came up to your, your co-workers and they said hey uh, just, did you know that Bobby here he's a believer in Christ they wouldn't be like really? He's a Christian, they would say, yeah, that makes total sense to me because of X, Y, Z and these things that he and she do. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, this is the kind of life we want to live. His whole life is characterized uh, by following Jesus. Following Jesus isn't a segmented portion of his life. It is his life. He's constantly thinking about God, talking about God with everybody that's around him. <clears throat> and he blesses them, they bless him. And then right there, as he's kind of say it, you can hear him say uh, when he walks up, the Lord be with you. Whose woman is that right there? So in verse five, he calls the servant. Verse five, he says, and Boaz says to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now he looks at her <clears throat> and he realizes um, she's, a, she's not from Israel. She, she's different than us. And she's, she's gleaning among the edges. Who is, who is this person? And, the, and this, the writer says, then Boaz said to his young man, uh, he calls him a young man trying to highlight for us that Boaz <clears throat> isn't young. He's older. He's an older fella. And so uh, he's asking, whose young woman is this? And being a Moabite, she's standing out. And Boaz wants to know who the stranger is. He wants to know uh, who, what's going on her. Now, he knows the story of Naomi. He just doesn't know that that's Ruth. He knows who Ruth and Naomi are. He, just, he knows Naomi. He just does, and he knows who Ruth is. He just doesn't know that that's Ruth. And so when the guy says, oh, this is Ruth, he's like, oh, I know, what, I know that whole story. I know the whole story. And when he knows that whole story, this is awesome. He's such a worthy man. You can see that he's going to respond with unbelievable generosity. He knows the story of how, just how poor and how destitute that things are for her. And he's like, I want to help them out. And he's going to be overflow with generosity. So the foreman says to, in verse uh, 6, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Uh, and so he, after that, he says, uh, young servant, she's been to Moab. Uh, verse seven, uh, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves for the, uh, after the reapers. So she, she said to me, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves for the reapers. So she came and has continued to work from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So he expresses who she is. He's, he comments on her impressive work ethic. She's been out here working hard since the day got started. Um, she's a Proverbs 31 woman, diligent in her hard work. And he's highlighting that. And then it says, she's been out here all morning. This is just for fun. You know, if you like fun stuff, uh, except for a short rest. Uh, that is the most difficult phrase to translate in the entire book of Ruth. No one knows what that means. They've guessed except for a short rest. Um, it, 
Any explanation is a guess, is what the writer said, or the com- writer, commentators say. Any, it could be, you know, who knows what? I don't even want to guess. So verse 8. Um, so that's the, uh, the first conversation that we see. He, you can already hear uh, in Boaz's mind, okay, I know who she is. I'm going to start showing favor to her. I'm going to start being generous to her. So that brings us to number B. So a letter B, go ahead and put up letter B. And we're going to see this conversation between Ruth and Boaz. And the way it's going to work is Boaz, then Ruth, then Boaz, then Ruth, then Boaz one more time. Five kind of interchanges, uh, three times Boaz, and those two are going to be Ruth in between. So verse eight, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, um, while that could be construed as the age difference, uh, Likely, it's, it's that he's breaking down barriers and trying to show that he cares about her. Uh, it's not patronizing. Um, it's a genuine sense of responsibility that he feels to take care of her. And so he calls her, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field anywhere um, or leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He's already said that no one's going to do anything to you. And when you're thirsty, this is awesome. Go to the vessels and drink that the young men have drawn. Um, so basically he's telling her, uh, there's water that's set out for the people that work for me. And that's for them. That's for Israelite men. You're a Moabite woman. Uh, and usually the women have to draw water for the men. And he's like, that water's for you. If you get thirsty, that's where you can go. That's where I want you to do. So he, he's doing two things here, um, displaying his amazing favor and generosity that he has. He's giving pr- provision and he's giving protection. The provision is he's authorizing her that she has freedom to glean in his field. She doesn't need to go anywhere else. And he tells her that she can drink of the fields uh, of the water that's reserved for his actual workers. That's, that, that's for him. And in this particular environment of Judges 21-25, that everybody does what's right in our own right, eyes. This is an amazing provision that he's making for her uh, to tell her that you can do this. But he's also offering for her protection. Um, And he's telling her to stay close to the young female servants and only hang out with them and giving her an environment of people that she can hang out with now. We'll we'll see that she's actually going to do this for a strong six to eight weeks. So he's given her a a new community and hang out with these female servants and and hang out with them. And he orders the men not to touch or even harass her. Daniel Block says, Boaz hereby institutes the very first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace recorded in the Bible. No one messes with, with Ruth. And so we can see the favor that he's shown to her by giving protection and provision. Now, just to make sure we understand, when the Lord's grace has come to us in abundance, this is, we're seeing a picture of the gospel in Boaz, but when the Lord's grace has come to us, our only right response is to fall down and worship for an adoration for what Christ has done. And Ruth, a new follower of Yahweh, gets that. She gets it right off. Watch what happens in verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. This is almost verbatim what our response should be in corporate worship whenever we think on the grace that's been shown to us. Fall down on our face, bowing to the ground and say, God, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? I am a, I was a follower of, of idols and now you have brought me into your family. And so she's, deeply grateful. She cannot believe that this grace has been shown to her. And he is treating the Moabite, 
just like every other Israelite. And she's absolutely amazed. And when we have received God's grace, which is we've received greater grace than Ruth has received here as recipients of Jesus's grace, we also should do this, that we should be humble and like Ruth and the grace comes to us. And when that happens, that's where worship begins. And so she asked, why should this, why should you take notice of me? Which is the same thing we should say, God, why did you choose me? Wow, I'm amazed that you did. And we fall on our faces in worship. This should be the posture of our hearts every time we sing together towards Jesus, that he would be so kind to us and show us this grace. That's her response is just unbelievable gratitude, which he says back to her in this. In verse 11 and 12, he's going to basically say, I know your story. I know your story. That's why I'm doing it. Um, verse 11 and 12, but Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And I know how you left your mother and father and natively and have, uh, can't, and, and came to a people that you did not know before. And then he's going to commend her faith. The Lord repay you for what you've done and full reward by you, the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I know your story and I know that you're a believer now in Jesus. And so that's why I'm doing this. And so he continues to dignify Ruth and explains to her five reasons why he's doing it. He's, he explains that he's given her favor because he knows their story. He explains that he's heard of Ruth's kindness towards Naomi. I've heard what you've been doing for Naomi, bitter Mara, and that I find inspiring. I think that that's awesome that you're doing that. He commends her for coming into the people of God. He blesses her in the name of Yahweh to continue to be a good, and he affirms the conversion to Yahweh that she's had um, by using that beautiful metaphor of coming under the wings of God by receiving protection under there. So he's commending that you left the God, the false God of Shemosh over in Moab, and now you follow the one true God, and you found refuge under the wings of God. And so um, that's why I'm doing all this. And as followers of Jesus, we also have had this happen to us. We've renounced the old false gods that the world has to offer, and we've come to take refuge in the wings of God. The only the Lord can provide this for us, and he's provided it for Ruth, and he's provided it for us. And so when she hears this, she says this, um, She's continually grateful in verse 13. Uh, and then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, and you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. This, though I'm your servant, though I'm not one of your servants, she's trying to, um, she's trying to say that I don't even deserve to be a servant, and yet you're being this amazing to me. She's, she's grateful. She's thanking Boaz that, he, she, he's, that he's shown this kindness to her. Uh, and so uh, she sees herself as, lower than even the female servants. And she's totally amazed that race and class does not stop Boaz's compassion towards her. And that should be the same for us as well. Uh, we treat people, everyone, because they're all made in the image of God, the exact same. We treat everyone with dignity. Nothing stops us from, from loving them and caring for them the way that Boaz does. No, it doesn't stop Boaz for her race or her class or even her, even her, uh, that she's a woman. Instead, he wants to uh, treat her as God would have all of us treat. So when we get into 14, verse 14 is the first date it, it, in, in ways. So they're going to share a meal together, and it's just for 14. And, and I say it's a first date because they're eating together, but it's not necessarily a date date. It's maybe, maybe Boaz's kind of slick way of getting a first date. Um, but nevertheless, the point is that they're going to eat together. And so eating together 
is an important way uh, for people to grow closer together. I know that in today's society where we eat our cheeseburgers in our cars uh, in the parking lots that we don't see, see eating as, John's shaking his head, like we don't, we don't uh, see eating as, a, as an intimate personal interaction with people when we eat together, but it is. It's always meant to be a time where people come together around food and share a meal together so that they can grow closer together, not just get to live for another eight hours because they ate. Um, and so we should do this as well. I mean, easy application for you. Find someone that you don't know that well and eat with them this week because eating together builds you closer together. Um, and so he's going to do that here in verse 14. You can see at the mealtime, Boaz. <clears throat> so this is awesome. It's lunchtime, you know, lunch break. Boaz, by the way, provides the meal for his workers. Awesome fella. And while he's doing it, he's like, hey, Ruth, Come over here with us, verse 14. Come over here and eat some of the bread and dip your morsel into the wine. <clears throat> so she sat with the reapers, that's the people that he employs, and he passed, it her, he passed her the roasted grain, and she, here it is, this is awesome, ate until she was satisfied. You know this girl's hungry. 10 years famine, working hard all the, all the morning thus far coming up, <clears throat> you know she's hungry. And she even had some left over, the first biblical doggy bag. Um, and so, uh, you see extraordinary things that Boaz is doing here. Uh, and we, we can do these as well. He invites Ruth the, Moabat, the Moabite, the outsider, to come and eat with him and the workers. Um, she had been keeping her distance. Boaz invites her in. And this is awesome because we should also note that this boss eats with his own people as well. He's an extraordinary man. He, he invites her in. Two, he is, encourages her to share um, with the food that was prepared for the workers. She's she considers herself under the female slaves or female workers and he invites her in to eat with the male workers. She had not brought any food with her likely. Um, no brown bag for her. She's probably just gonna work through lunch and keep going to finally have some food. I mean, they did come from a famine. They probably didn't have any food and he uh, had nothing to eat and he invites her to eat the good food and he encourages her to dip her morsel into the wine. Uh, so basically, this is just him being kind to her saying, you need the good, it's like you're eating a chicken nugget, but I've got the Chick-fil-A sauce. Why would I not say, you should dip it in the Chick-fil-A sauce and eat it, right? That's what makes it better. You can eat the dry chicken nugget, or you can dip it in the Chick-fil-A sauce, and then it's awesome. He said, one commentator says, Boaz could not allow her to eat dry bread while he enjoyed the more pleasant food. Dip it in the wine. Take the Chick-fil-A sauce. It makes it better. Um, even though it's got like 5,000 calories. Um, next thing he does is he actually serves her. When she was seated, he served to her the roasted grain. The, the owner of the field, the boss of all, the employer, everybody, humbles, does this sound like Jesus? Humbles himself and comes and serves her and gives her the food. That's an extraordinary action for the landowner to do. Again, he's uh, so, so much like Christ in so many ways. And he gives her, this is great, more than what she needs. She ate and was satisfied, and she had some left over. Now we're gonna come back to she ate and was satisfied in our conclusion. But nevertheless, this is a picture of Jesus where he feeds the 5,000 and there's leftovers for everybody. Where do you think that leftover is going? Naomi, guess what I got? She's like, woo, I'm hungry. Yes, thank you. So that's my guess, um, but I wasn't there. So here we go. Uh, verse 14's over. Uh, the first date of sorts is over. And now we're gonna go to 15 where we're going to see um, we're going to see another conversation. So conversation three, uh, 
See, perfect. Uh, Boaz is going to talk to the harvesters again, and an abundance of generosity is going to be shown here. He's shown a lots, of, lots of generosity. An abundance of generosity is about to flow out. Now, we, we've, said, we've seen you can stay in the margins and, eat these marg- and glean these margins. He's about to shift that. He's about to just go far beyond what the law requires. And he's given her physical protection. He's going to give her even more protection. So 15, 16. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Let her pull out from even the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So the motif of protection and provision continues. Providing, he's giving her provision by letting her glean from the sheaves and pull out from the bundles. This is not just the margins anymore. This is the good stuff that's already been kind of gone through and he's, he's letting her get from that. In other words, he's wanting to make her job easier and he tells the workers to have, she gets special privileges that others don't get. This is an amazing provision that he's making to the Moabite foreigner. So he's going far beyond the law, far beyond what the law had called for and providing her to let her glean among the sheaves and pull out the bundles. And he provides even further protection. In verses eight and nine, he had provided physical protection. No one touches you. Now he's going to go further than that and provide for her psychological protection. And he instructs the young men that no one is to reproach her or humiliate her because of her getting to do this. No one's to say a word. No one's to rebuke her or insult her because she gets these further privileges. Um, And so he's giving her further provision and further protection. Now, I want you to notice, Ruth is not just gonna sit back and be like, that's what I'm talking about. Don't have to do anything else. She's gonna keep working hard. Look at verse 15. Whenever all this happens, she rose to glean. I mean, she got to dip her morsel in his wine. She's thinking, hey, hey, look at me. I'm good. I'm getting all these protections. I'm getting all kinds. I got the Chick-fil-A sauce. He's really, he's really digging me. That's not what she's assuming at all. She stays humble. She stays a servant. She goes right back out to the field and gets working. She's going to keep working hard. That's evidenced for us in verse 17. Look at this. So she gleaned in the field until evening. This is a strong 10 to 12 hour workday for her. She's not messing around. As a matter of fact, she worked so hard. She beat it out. When she had gleaned, she had about an ephah. You're like, yeah, an ephah. I don't know what that means either. I had to look it up. That's 30 pounds. That's 30 pounds. This is two to three weeks supply that this Proverbs 31 industrial woman got. Now think about Boaz's generosity. Every day you work, I'm going to give you two weeks wages for every day. We'd love to work out that with our employer, right? Every day I work for you, you got to pay me for two weeks. That's the abundance of generosity that Boaz is giving to her. Now we should also note just what kind of workhorse she is. She's a beast, right? She's a Proverbs 31 woman. She has a 30 pound bag of grain and the doggy bag and takes that junk back to the house. That's pretty amazing. She did this and she took it up and went to the city. So she went back in to her mother-in-law. You can just picture this beast of a woman, like not in a bad way, in in an awesome way, like carrying the 30 pound bag, carrying the thing all the way back to the house and going in. And so we see again, the third provision of, of Boaz, highlighting his his generosity to her, that he's going to let her glean among the sheaves. He's going to protect her in every single way. And we get to verse 17, and that's going to bring us into the third section, a new hope, but we're not there yet. I want to highlight one more thing for us about Boaz, the generosity of Boaz, giving her one day's work, uh, giving her two weeks wages, basically, and one day's work. Uh, one, One pastor, Tony Marita, highlights seven amazing traits about Boaz that I don't want us to miss because they're so Christ-centered. He, he starts by quoting Micah 6, 8, which maybe you're familiar. What has he told you, O oh man? What is good? What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
And so looking at that verse and looking at the life of Boaz, this is what he said. Boaz integrates his faith and work. He lives out Colossians 3, 17 and 23. Do your work as unto the Lord. Every job you have that we have that we've ever had, whether we work at a church or whether we work at a, something that's not a church, we still are working for the Lord and we should do all of our work unto the Lord. Boaz does that. He does his work unto the Lord. He integrates his faith in his work. He also provides for the hungry. He allows Ruth special privileges and provides for her as someone who's a marginalized person. He also uh, speaks words of dignity and respect to her. Uh, he lets her drink at the good water fountain. He honors her. He prays for her. He speaks kindly to her. He invites her to his table. He gives her the best portions. He serves her himself. He urges men not to mess with her. He also protects her uh, as someone who's vulnerable, tells no one that they can talk to her or harass her and, and orders the men to stay away from her. Especially in the Judges 21-25 time, what they did is what they wanted. He, uh, he also practices hospitality at the meal time, at the lunch break. He uh, provides for his workers and for her. He's a hospitable man. He also goes beyond the letter of the law, not just letting her go in the margins, but gives her hesed and lets her have an abundance of things. And he also walks humbly with God as he interacts with with. <clears throat> His workers, and just as he lives his life of a man who wants to give amazing provision, he is a man that walks with God. And so uh, humility is not just something that Ruth is displaying, but also that he has. Now, that brings us into uh, verse 18, where we're going go to go to number three, a new hope. Naomi has a new hope. Verse 18, you can see it here. Um, so uh, 18 through 23, Ruth takes it up into the city. She's carrying it. Uh, her mother-in-law, she's got the big bag and she brought it in and gave her the leftovers from 14 uh, that she had. And so you can just, just picture Naomi, bitter, not feeling great, still upset Naomi when Ruth walks in with two weeks of food and an immediate meal right now in the doggy bag. Uh, and she's like, hey, got something for you. You can see she exclaims two questions and a blessing. She's just where, where did you do that? Like what you can see it um, in verse 19. Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Bless the man that took notice of you. <laughs> she doesn't even let her answer. She says, where did you get that? Where did you? Now, here's what I noticed as I was looking at this and I found it to be absolutely amazing. Now, um, you, first thing is that you can feel the, demeer, the demeanor of Mara start to change back to pleasant Naomi, right? The excitement of, whoa, two weeks grain and a doggy bag. Where did you go? Where did you do this? Bless the guy that did this. Um, now, what I noticed is this. Um, Naomi said, where? Where did you glean and where have you worked? And so I would have answered where I did this. But Ruth doesn't do that. Ruth has this ability um, to know the question behind the question and doesn't just answer where, but answers who. Now, I would have just answered where because I'm, maybe I'm just simple-minded. But that, Ruth, Ruth has the ability to understand, I know what you're really asking, and you don't want to just know where I went. You want to know with whom I was with. And so uh, the writer builds it up as best as they can. Uh, where were you? Where have you worked? Bless the man that took load of you. And so she looked at her mother-in-law and whom she had worked. And the man with whom I work today is, and you can just feel like, who is it? The writer's wanting you to, like Boaz at the very end of the sentence. Who is it? Boaz. And then Naomi. Now, this is bitter Mara Naomi, right? Question, question, blessing. As soon as she finishes it, another blessing straight to Boaz. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So we see this turn here, this two exclamations of blessing. And what we're seeing then in Naomi is an experience of revival. The Lord has taken the end of the day 
where she's weeping through the night and joy's coming in the morning. It took a while. If, if you are uh, identifying with Naomi, if you are still experiencing grief and you need a revival, here's your homework. Read Psalm 143 this week. Read Psalm 143 every day this week because the writer of the psalm understands your heart right now. Read Psalm 143, but that's what we're experiencing here. Uh, Naomi's total turnaround is starting to happen and Ruth is being used to do it. Um, I want to encourage you as you see Naomi's total turnaround in your own life that you can experience it as well. Weeping will end and one day the storm cloud will lift. Uh, one commentator says, when Naomi learns that Ruth has met up with Boaz, the sun rises in her life again. Yahweh has been gracious to her deceased husband and her sons by sending the potential Goel kinsman redeemer into their lives, by sending Boaz. And so, question, question, I was with Boaz, uh, praises, two exclamations of blessing, and then after that, <clears throat> we get to the pinnacle of the chapter. Naomi looks at her and says, so if you underline, it's a fine to underline, this is the, the uh, pinnacle of the chapter two, is that end of verse 20. Naomi looks at her and says, this man, or the man, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Redeemers. This means Boaz is a goel. He is a kinsman redeemer. This word redeemer, this goel, uh, is a technical legal term in the Israelite family law, which means he can come to the aid of family members. Referenced from Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25. You can go look those up. Um, chapter 3 will explain the Goel further next week. But the kinsman redeemer uh, was obligated and obliged to come to relatives who fell in debt or slavery. And sometimes he was also a, uh, obliged to marry the widows and raise up children for a brother who died. Nevertheless, he is a Goel. He is a, a person that can redeem Ruth in this entire situation. And so she looks at her and you can see Naomi starting to get excited. We've got a Goel on our hands. Things can turn around for us. It's not just a bag and a doggy bag, right? Our whole lives can change. And so, but before we start ordering the wedding cake, there's a, there's a couple things, a couple problems. One, you can see it in the text. This man is a close redeemer, one of our redeemers. There's others and there's one that's closer than him. So this closer redeemer has the right to Ruth, to marry Ruth and redeem her before Boaz does. And so that's one hurdle. And the other hurdle is they don't even know if Boaz wants to do this yet, right? They don't know. And so because she is a Moabite and not an Israelite, there's a loophole for him. He can, he can say, well, I don't want to redeem a Moabite. I'd rather redeem an Israelite. And so before we start ordering the wedding cake, there's a closer redeemer and she's a Moabite and there's a loophole. But Boaz isn't a loophole kind of guy. I mean, he just doesn't let the people glean on the edges, right? He lets her come in. And so we're going to see that, that the motivation that Boaz operates is not by law, but by love. And so we're starting to see that there's an ex excitement. And it says <clears throat> in verse 21 and 22, that's just Ruth and Naomi catching up on the day. Like, here's what he said, here's what I said, here's what I said, here's what I said. verse 21. Then Ruth Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my, uh, 
keep close by my young men until they have finished my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, it's good, my daughter-in-law, that you go out with the young women, lest another field you be assaulted. So they're, they're catching up on everything and they're agreeing all that's kind of happened. It, they call her the Moabite again, just to remind us of the clash of cultures that things are going out and they agree that this is good, the kindness that he's shown, the generosity that he's shown. And then it says this, this is crazy, right? Verse 23, so she kept close the young to the women of Boaz. So she goes back out the next day we, we already established this is March to April. March to April. And she goes into the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. Barley harvest ends and wheat harvest. So we're talking six to eight weeks she's going out. Before we get to chapter three, if you've read ahead, you know that that's a long time. Like, and then she lived with her mother-in-law. Six to eight weeks of going in and, out, in and out, in and out, before something's going to happen. So six to eight weeks is a long time for them to be talking about having a goel and then having to wait. The drama's building. So it could be that Boaz is really, really liking to build the drama. Like, well, I'm gonna let this play out for a little bit and I'm gonna let it be a dramatic thing. Or it could just be that Boaz has no game. That's why he's old and not married yet. I don't know. Um, it could be, obviously, the sovereign hand of God is bringing things about. We're gonna see, uh, nevertheless, that the sun is rising in Naomi's heart. She's got a new hope and Naomi's got some plans. She's got some plans for Ruth after these six to eight weeks. Put on a dress and take a bath and get some perfume on and put on some nice clothes and wait till he's full. Let him have a little bit of wine. Little, and this is not the advice I would give to my daughters. But nevertheless, Naomi gives this advice to Ruth. We can talk about next week whether we think it's great advice or not. But she's got a plan. And it's going to start being instituted in chapter 3. Um, but we'll see that next week. I want to conclude by 14. <clears throat> I want to conclude with verse 14. I said I'm going to come back to this. And this is uh, a great way to conclude thinking about Christ and what he's done for us. Verse 14, at the mealtime, Boaz said, come and eat with us and eat some bread and dip your morsel into the wine. And so she sat <clears throat> beside the reapers and he passed her the grain, he served her. And here it is, she ate until she was satisfied. She was completely full and she had some left over. Charles Spurgeon wrote a devotional uh, on chapter two, verse 14, about how Jesus satisfies us like Ruth was satisfied in this particular context. And this is what he said about the satisfaction that we get from Jesus. Whenever we are privileged to eat of the bread which Jesus gives us, we are like Ruth, satisfied with the full and sweet, uh, he says repast, basically stuff that he gives us. Um, when Jesus is the host, no guest goes empty from the table. Our head is satisfied with the precious truth which Christ reveals to us. Our heart is content with Jesus as the altogether lovely object of affection. Our hope is satisfied with whom, our hope is satisfied. For whom do we have in heaven but Jesus? Our desire is satisfied. For what else can we wish for other than to know Christ and to be found in him? Jesus fills our conscience till at, it is at perfect peace. Our judgment with the persuasion of the certainty of his teachings. Our memory with the recollections of what he's done and our imagination of the prof, prospects of the things that he's going to yet do. As Ruth was satisfied and then left, so it is with us. We have deep draughts. We have thought that we could take in all of Christ, but when we have done our best to have 
as much as we can, there is at leave still a vast remainder. We have sat at the table of the Lord's love and said, nothing but the infinite can ever satisfy me. I am such a great sinner that I must have the infinite merit to wash away my sin. And when we've had our sin removed and we found that there's no merit to spare, yet we have had our hunger relieved at the sacred feast of the sacred love, we have found that there is still a redundance or an abundance of spiritual meat still there. Meaning the Lord never, ever runs out satisfying. It's not a one time. It's an ongoing forever. And so therefore, come to this. And so this is what he writes. There are certain sweet things in the word of God which we have not enjoyed yet and which we have not, for which we are obliged to leave for a while for we are like the, dis the disciples to whom Jesus said, I have many things to say to you, but you can't even bear them now. Yes, there are graces to which we have not attained, places of fellowship nearer to Christ which we have not even reached, the heights of communion for which our feet have not even climbed, every banquet of love, there are many baskets, baskets and fragments left. Then let us magnify and be in awe of the liberality of our glorious Boaz, Jesus. He has satisfied us and he is offering for you infinite satisfaction at every turn whenever you are empty again to fill you and to fill you and to fill you. It's a never ending filling. So keep coming. Let your, your finite heart keep coming to the infinite because there's more, there's always more that he wants to give you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have these extraordinary, extraordinary exemplars in this text where we see Ruth loving uh, her mother-in-law, being kind to her even though she's bitter, bringing home food for her, trying to turn her heart, being a person of action, not just of faith, but of action as well, going hard to work, providing for her and, and Naomi, and loving her, her mother-in-law so well. Thank we th that we have this exemplar Boaz, which points us to Jesus, God, that he is not just done what the law required, but go, gone far and, and abundant more than what the law required for us that we have an amazing grace that's shown to us in Christ that we can receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace from Jesus. That you are, Jesus, for us, our glorious Boaz who fills us, who forgives our sin, that we cannot be filled by any, anybody else except for by the infinite in Jesus. Thank you, God, that you have given us these people in this text that all point us to our blessed hope, Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.